Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, and it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Marsh. Stephanie is the UX Research Operations Manager at Springer Nature Group, a 175-year-old publisher that publishes the world-renowned Nature Journal and Scientific American, amongst others. Before joining Springer Nature, Stephanie was the Head of User Research and Analysis at the United Kingdom's Government Digital Service, or GDS, the department of the UK government that's responsible for digital transformation. Stephanie has also held senior positions at the UK Ministry of Defence, where she was the Head of Digital Strategy, and at HSBC Bank in London, where she was the UX Manager. She is the author of User Research, A Practical Guide to Designing Better Products and Services, an incredibly useful reference for researchers that covers all of the key research methods and gives expert insight into the nuances, advantages, and disadvantages of each. Published by Kogan Page, the second edition is due out in February 2022. Stephanie holds a PhD in Information Science from City University, but right now she's holding the virtual line and about to join me for a wide-ranging conversation about all things UX research and research ops. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And it was fascinating looking at your background as part of preparation for this conversation. As any good researcher would do, you want to, you want to come into these things well-informed. And I discovered that you came to UX via science, and, and I mean by that, like actual science. Your PhD was about using HCI techniques and geo-visualization. Mm. I'm not even going to pretend to know what that is. So tell us, what... What was that about and how did it lead to you becoming a UXer? So, yeah, my PhD is actually where I taught myself to do user research. Um, so, yeah, HCI being human-computer interaction, which is sort of what collectively UX was in the olden days. So I finished my PhD in 2007, so it's quite old now. So, yeah, I was essentially looking at how highly interactive tools uh, that were for visualizing geographic information could be used in education and learning and sort of understanding what uh, usability or user research methods could use to evaluate them. And actually looking at, I mean, user research was fairly young still in that academic field when I was there and looking at what techniques would be previously used and why mm. weren't getting the results they expected and it it may sound obvious now but kind of like using your target users is obviously essential but often they was using like master students as proxies for um yeah professors or something like that and mm -hmm. just understanding sort of yeah what the right thing to do was at what time depending on the context so I feel like I've come full circle, kind of being research operations and supporting people doing research. To that, that's a lot of what I talk about. It's like, what's the right method? What questions are we answering? Sort of, what's the context? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll definitely come to your your move into research operations. I really want to explore that with you. It's fascinating to understand with your 
post PhD move, instead of staying in academia, you moved into uh, into the I think it was the private sector at least initially into consulting. Mm. Uh, there's a number of PhD or academic researchers that have contacted me recently asking about you know how do they best make the move into you know private or even public sector um, user research. You seem to do that quite early on. What was the decision uh, that you made to leave academia and go into uh, into the p- p- private sector? What was that about? The honest answer was there were no academic jobs <laughs> that, okay. were, that I wanted to do. Um, and at the beginning, yeah, I was... I was like doing a lot of job interviews um, while I was writing up my PhD because obviously kind of mm. literally the only thing you're doing so you can do other things. And they were just like, yeah, it's great. You can have a PhD, but you don't have any experience. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I heard that a lot. So I <laughs> went and did an internship essentially and mm-hmm. um, I worked for about nine months at lastminute.com uh, which was like a travel booking site, an experience booking site, um, and essentially did like two days a week for nine months to get that mm. commercial experience. And it was a combination in the end of having the PhD and that experience that someone at the HSBC like gave, basically gave me a chance and said, okay, mm. yeah, uh, yeah. I think it was that, yeah, combination of like that in-depth knowledge Mm. knowing that I'd been able to apply what I've been doing in a business was kind of what pushed it over the edge mm. so yeah. yeah maybe not maybe not what the uh what the university might have sold you on at the end was the reality of the requirement that a lot of companies have of actual uh actual real world experience which is always a bit of a chicken or the egg mm. kind of situation for people I feel yeah yeah and it's partly yeah just finding people who are willing to take a chance I think sometimes mm. but yeah I definitely mm. recommend um I mean I get people contacting me in LinkedIn for example saying I'm working in this field how do I make the move into UX and mm. you know should I take a master's and there are some great courses out there but it's still a young enough field that it's like not a requirement to have you know a formal um more education and I usually recommend doing some kind of internship or like finding a small local charity that probably has a website but they probably don't have you know a digital team or a UX person and just saying you know can I help you and just like getting a hands-on experience to see if it's Mm. you and like having that on your CV I think often helps. Mm. Yeah I think that's a really important Point, that it is still quite a young field and it's interesting talking to people in product management as well like everybody comes from such a, a wide and varied background and that's definitely the case in UX too mm-hmm. so if, if we thought fast forward a decade or so after you finished your PhD you wrote a book called user research a practical guide to designing better products and services and that came out in 2018 how did that opportunity come about uh, it was a colleague at the Ministry of Defence was writing a book for Coogan Page as well and um, on an entirely different subject and um, just suggested I talk to them because, yeah, it could be, it was like it, they don't ha- they didn't have any books on user research. I'm still the only, it's a business, um, mm-hmm. a business 
books publisher essentially so mm. yeah I'm still they have a lot of market research books but I'm the only user research so I did a proposal yeah and they liked it they saw a gap in the market so yeah I was very happy to do that very cathartic experience of writing well it is I loved it it was it's not an easy thing to do but just like yeah being able to all these things you've got in your head and putting them on the page is yeah really great experience yeah, I was going to ask you about that, and, and it's it's interesting that you say that you loved it, although you, you did say it was hard as well, because most of the authors that I speak to, um, it's kind of a love-hate relationship that they, they have with their work. Yeah, very much, yeah. It, but you obviously loved it enough that you were going to write a second edition, which I understand is, per your recent blog post, is coming soon. Yeah, uh, yeah, so I'm working on that now. Um, it's interesting, yeah. Because I've thought about it and I was hoping at some point I'd get a chance to do it because you just, you never stop learning. So there's things that I've learned since it was published. Like, oh, I wish, I'd, you know, the book included this. And it's great to get an opportunity to do that. And yeah, I've yeah, always sort of having a new perspective of what could be useful to people. And what is coming in that second edition? So obviously research operations has exploded since <laughs> published it i mean yeah super young field so i've got i'm going to put some stuff about basically setting up for success assuming that it isn't not everyone's got a super mature research operations practice in our organization mm -hmm. what other sort of foundational things you can do that are going to help you in the future if you keep doing research just to make it easier and sort of ease the burden of the admin or user research. And um, obviously GDPR is also much more uh, prevalent uh, now, so go much more into depth about data protection and mm -hmm. legal and ethical side of things. And originally in the book, I like did a little bit on analysis, but I've realised over the last few years just analysis is you know it's a real skill I mean the whole of research each phase is a skill but I've seen time and time again research the analysis side of it is what people can struggle with the most and it takes time to build up those skills so I'm going mm. in depth on how to do robust analysis as well yeah those are some really important topics particularly the the analysis part when i was reading through your blog and how you were articulating that it really hit home for me it is often under not necessarily undervalued but maybe overlooked when compared to the actual uh, data gathering or collection type methods that we we tend to we tend to focus on yes yeah it's like that's the visible part of research and sort of mm. analysis is almost the invisible Bit that happens in the black box of magic yeah yeah i've actually got some analysis to do after after we we conclude our conversation today and i have to <laughs> say i actually prefer the collection over the analysis but that's just it's part of the job isn't it yeah. i also was reading in one of your recent blog posts a um a post that mentioned that at gds which you recently left i think at the end of 2019 to yeah. join spring of nature that at the time you left you mentioned that there were service design, graphic design, interaction design, content design, and technical writing heads at the GDS, all separate from one another. Earlier on, you mentioned to me that the field is quite is quite young. Is this sort of, I suppose, 
uh, lack of rationalization and in, in terms of how we structure the UX or UX research parts of the organization symptomatic of that youngness of our field? Or is this just bureaucracy that's gone mad in the case of, of public institutions? Um, I think it's a conversation that's going on everywhere uh, in terms of how do we best structure ourselves to be effective? And I think, um, yeah, not just in government, but I've seen that in terms of what I've experienced and, you know, talking to fellow practitioners, because Mm. of the youngness of the field, it feels like we're still subservient to more established um yeah more established disciplines and mm-hmm. there's also something in the fact that if you don't if you're not familiar with his research and um, you often hear like oh you know it's talking to people um we can all talk to people um whereas and i think it's the same for context nice like oh we can all write um not realizing the skills that go in it but something like yeah. Being a developer and coding, we know that, yeah, not everybody can code. So there's a power in that that I think UCD people don't necessarily feel they have because there's something not quite as um, tangible is not the right word, but it's just not as obvious what those hardcore skills are, even though they are there, they very much exist. But because it, yeah, it looks like, oh, it's talking to people, or it's just writing, there's slightly mm-hmm. Values, so you don't necessarily get people at the really senior level um, representing UCD, for example. So it's often they're more at the top, they're more kind of tech oriented or product oriented people, and we don't get the same level of seniority yet. Mm. I think it's moving. Mm. I think in, there are organizations that are starting to get those people that they have equal footing with the others. Yeah, but I think slow progress does that make sense yeah it does make sense and we were speaking via email before this conversation and um, we were talking about the topic of bullying in the workplace and you mentioned to me in there that uh, it's sometimes I think it way you framed it was that user researchers can be perceived as being a bit of a thorn in the side of other uh, SMEs or other people that we're working with You've also openly written about um, aspects of your own experience with being bullied in the workplace, mm-hmm. and this is such an important topic to speak about. I wondered if you would mind sharing with me what that experience was like for you. Yeah, I think, yeah, the fall in the side is an interesting one because particularly if you're in an agile environment, you're working at pace, then you've got pressure, you've got deadlines. A researcher saying, you know, hold on, we need to, you know, um, are we asking, are we building the right thing? We need to check that this works with the users. And, you know, unfortunately, it's certain kinds of research aren't easy to do within one sprint. And I think mm-hmm. yeah, can often be seen as, a bottleneck or a barrier to delivering something and I know yeah um, many researchers that have felt that sort of resentment or pressure that you know we need to get this done and we're saying you know we're, you know, we're trying to get it done right the first time because we we've, you know we've validated things with the users for example or yeah. 
you know, we're not building things just on assumptions. And that can be a, a tricky balance, I think, to negotiate. You know, it's all, yeah, uh, human interactions, isn't it? And sort of trying to negotiate mm. what the right thing to do is considering all the pressures. And I guess I think some of it, because we have quite, I've had quite a lot of, sort of what is bullying, what is harassment, discrimination training in government. They're pretty good at. Mm um making people understand what those things look like and i think in terms of what i experienced it's often quite subtle and you're like you even question yourself like is that bullying but if you Mm. it's how it makes you feel whatever the intention of the person was you know they may not realize how they're making you feel but i think yeah it's and what were those what were those subtle behaviors that you experience that maybe others are out there are again like you mentioned sort of questioning themselves like hang on is this sort of normal and acceptable behavior or is this actually sort of crossing that line into what could be mm-hmm. considered bullying yeah so i think like most recently uh, a few years ago now um it was sort of having my work consistently blocked and mm-hmm. like being told like, oh you know use research it's not real data and stuff like that and it's one thing when that's said to your face but it's another thing when you're trying to work in a team and that's being said in front of your team and that's like constantly undermining mm-hmm. um, like the value they see I'm giving or sort of the any authority that I might have in the team and then that sort of starts eroding trust and stuff like that so yeah it's kind of those things and I've seen it quite a lot in toxic masculine environments it's like well you just don't get my sense of humor it's like Mm. you can't hide behind that as a an excuse you know this behavior is not appropriate you're undermining mm. me with it, my position in the team and yeah I think particularly why I wrote that post is I, you just see so many people suffer in silence like oh I can't say anything so I'm not entirely sure what it is that's happening to me or if I say something it will make it worse for example and yeah as you know when mm. I was the head of user research analysis obviously I was there's a lot of um, HR involved in that and supporting people who felt bullied. And there is rightly a lot of process in place so that people aren't wrongly accused and it can be properly investigated. So it can take a long time. So mm. there can be a perception of if I say something, nothing will happen. It'll just make my life worse. And mm. it is a scary thing to say, you know, something's happening and I don't think it's appropriate and I want help to you know mm. change the situation it's not an easy thing to do it takes it does take a lot of bravery I would say yeah to do that but I think yeah I wrote that to encourage people to to do that because yeah if people don't speak up then we will just stay in toxic environments and ultimately like good people leave and you just left mm. with the ones that are happily swimming around in a, in a toxic soup, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, you, you obviously took action. Um, what was the 
impact or that moment where you realized that this behavior wasn't okay and what did you actually do about it to address it? Um, I spoke to, I think I realized that it was just like an accumulation that keeps happening. This mm. isn't about banter or humor. This is like systematic undermining of me. I spoke to my manager and they said, if you feel comfortable, then, you know, talk to the person directly because they may not just realize. So I did that and it didn't do anything. And I well, think that's brave. Doing that's brave, right? Like actually going to the person that has been systematically yeah. undermining you and addressing it with them, you know. Yeah. And I mean, really brave. It's certainly not for everyone. And certainly as a manager myself, I would also, you know, when people are having tension with a colleague, you say, feel comfortable, talk to them. If not, I can be with you there and talk to, you know, why you talk to them or I can talk to them on your behalf. And it's just, yeah, there's a different path for everyone and what they feel comfortable with. And I think I personally felt comfortable enough in that because I felt it was very much directed towards sort of my job. And although I would say the person uh, without really knowing was much harsher on women uh, than men, it wasn't about me as a person. I think if I had been experiencing um, like real misogyny or like mm. if it was about you know, sexual orientation or anything like that, I think I probably wouldn't have felt so comfortable. But because it was literally, you know, I'm a user researcher and that was sort of another, it felt like it was a doable thing for me to confront them. Yeah. So it sounds like you weighed up how safe you felt in that situation yeah, and exactly. you felt safe enough yeah. to address it. How yeah. did the person respond when, when you when you raised this with them? Uh, it was very much, oh, you just don't understand my sense of humour. Mm. <laughs> uh, even though I, like, uh, the shy introvert I am, I felt very, you know, thought very carefully about what I was going to say before I said it and, like, had concrete examples. Um but yeah, everything was dismissed. So it went back to my manager, went to their manager. And it was, in the end, um, wasn't able to get anything done formally. But what I realised, um, and the benefit of being people who study other people, you kind of can see how others work and what will influence them and what won't. So I realised to, you know, we weren't and you know we're going, we weren't going to be friends <laughs> or mm-hmm. but we needed to be functioning work colleagues and essentially I just created a strategy of when I knew I needed to get something done for example evidence used to do a thing I would share it with the people that he respected and was influenced by and then got them to influence him to then do the work. So, you know, obviously I would have much preferred it if we could have worked together to use it mm. to do the thing, but that wasn't going to happen. So I had to find other ways. <laughs> it's not really like solving the bullying, but mm. in the end it was sort of how can, yeah, I get the work done. Mm, it's very pragmatic and it's great to hear that you were able to take power back into the way that you were interacting with that person. It's just a shame that it, 
it, it wasn't perhaps better um, orchestrated by the organisation to enable that to to be a more sort of usual type of relationship. Mm-hmm. If someone is listening to this episode and is being bullied or suspects that they might be, what would you recommend to them that they do? If some interaction you're having is making you feel bad in some way, then I would say, yes, you're probably being bullied. And just go with that instinct and find someone at work, hopefully at work, that you feel comfortable talking to, that you feel safe talking to. And depending on, you know, obviously startups is very different to a government department, but like if you have a structure where you have someone in HR or, you know, someone who deals with that kind of thing, they're very much there to listen to you and to support to you. So, yeah, I would say find someone to talk to or, you know, talk to friends first and, you know, just sort of sound out a strategy that you're Mm. comfortable with. But, yeah, I would say just, yeah, try not to suffer in silence. Find a way to talk to someone and try and yeah get something done about it because often you're not the only one they're probably bullying other people and not just you as well so there's just many people Mm. suffering in the end i was talking with uh, a leader in product management last week a gentleman by the name of marty kagan and we were talking about this topic of toxic behavior and toxic individuals and um, basically, the uh, outcome from that conversation was that there should really be a zero tolerance for those type of individuals because they, as the old, old sort of analogy goes, you know, one bad apple will spoil the entire mm-hmm. barrel. It's so true. And uh, he actually referenced the New Zealand All Blacks as a uh, example of that. They have a uh, no assholes rule. Uh, and the team, and it applies to coaching as well. And that's one of the reasons he believes anyway why they've been so successful on the sporting field. So, yes, talk to someone, don't suffer in silence. It's a really important point. And thank you, Stephanie, for sharing that with us today. Before we get into some practical UX research topics, I'm really curious about why you made the move from research into research ops. From my many years of experience as a user researcher, it just made so much sense what was being talked about and developed. And I could see as a head of a community of about 30, 35 people, Mm -hmm. it was so, we just, we didn't have that and could just see the impact it was having um, to not have that infrastructure in place. And unfortunately, at the time, GDS, the way budgets were structured or siloed, shall I say, just wasn't able to get budget to invest in it. Um, Mm. So we started doing as much as we could in a structured, constructive way as a community to do it for ourselves. But And that was great for many reasons, but it's very much dependent on what people's workloads are like. So mm-hmm. if you're very busy, then obviously you're going to focus on the day job and not the side projects. But, yeah, that made a big difference. And I just, I I like helping people. And I think I saw sort of, there was lots of interesting stuff going on. 
and there was the aspect of helping people and it just felt like the right thing to do yeah yeah you mentioned at GDS uh, in, the, in one of the conference presentations I was reviewing before today, you, you, you sort of broke down the different models that research is often running in within organizations. What can you tell us about what you realized about the model that GDS was running, what you were attempting to move to, and perhaps where Springer Nature is at the moment in terms of the model that you're, you're implementing or, or, or have implemented already there? Yeah. So... I would say that GDS at the time was very much distributed. Everything was done in programs. And we did community activities together, like we learned things together, we discussed things together, but like tools and budgets and planning of work very much happened within a program. There wasn't necessarily a lot of crossover. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas at Spring and Nature, obviously, you still have people in product teams, in programs of work, but we have a centralized team as well. So within the central team, there is myself and my colleague as research operations, but you also have researchers that are doing like cross, um, we, we call them domains, GDS calls them programs, but essentially, you know, research that's at that high level that's beneficial for everybody mm-hmm. and obviously we are doing you know no matter what team you're in we as research ops are there to support you and the budgets for tools are centralized and things like that and we set up guidance and governance and like infrastructure that is for for everybody and that is much more effective rather than everyone creating their own thing and having lots of redundancy in there Mm. and you've got the added complexity at Springer from what I gather that you've got teams distributed across London, Berlin and Pune in India how has that been in terms of a challenge to manage the rollout of a research ops framework and agenda Um, (laughs) and we also have teams in uh, Shanghai now so I think it's I would say that particularly because, uh, yeah, so both research people were both based in London. So obviously time is a factor. So (laughs) in Pune, they're like four hours ahead. So it's not too bad. But our colleague in Shanghai, they're eight hours ahead. So, you know, know, as we're starting our day, they're finishing theirs. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of scheduling that has to be quite creative sometimes or doing things multiple times with multiple time zones just to make sure everybody's included or finding mm. ways to do a, things asynchronously um mm. we want everybody to feel equally supported and yeah not to think like oh because they're in the uk they're going to support uk people more we want everybody to be equal um, I wouldn't say it's a challenge, but it's extremely interesting to learn about different cultures and what's appropriate in different cultures in terms of how we sort of interact with our users who are UXs, the researchers, but also sort of when doing international research, because most of our whole research is international. So, yeah, how different cultures react to being a participant or the way we ask questions and things like that. that's a very interesting thing to consider mm. as well 
so, so your your researchers you're supporting and and outside of the UK are they largely researchers from other cultures? Yes. Yeah. So what does that learning loop look like between what they understand about the local context and what you need to understand about that in order to enable the research ops to support them um, and, and the way that's going to be effective for them? Um, so particularly for us, we invite feedback um, on a very regular basis. You know, we always say to people, if you don't tell us when, you know, we don't know if we're doing something wrong or if we're not supporting you in some way. So it's just being very open to conversation and constructive feedback. But also, yeah, I mean, as a department, just giving space to talk about those things and acknowledging and appreci appreciating people's expertise. Um, we've been doing a lot of research in China and, yeah, learning the different cultural things and like how to talk to people and most Chinese mm. people don't like small talk so there's not necessarily a preamble at the beginning of um, a session and just mm -hmm. yeah understanding those things so you can slightly adjust your um, approach has been really um, really useful and you know, our intention is to sort of document some of these things so that any new researcher coming along can like go read up before they do their first session for example mm. so you're 18 months or so in now to to that role of running research ops at Springer Nature what ways are you measuring the effectiveness of UX research ops yes yeah, so we do we have some metrics um, so we track in terms of what GDPR issues we have identified and resolved mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And particularly for the first year, we were tracking all the different kinds of questions that we were being asked in when mm -hmm. people were asking for support to um, try and identify sort of, is there something we need to provide in that area? Um, Got it. Yeah, so that... And that part of being international is obviously we are there to help, but if you're in a different time zone, we want there to be documentation, guidance, etc., that you can use if we're not there to answer the question immediately. So like thinking about, okay, maybe we need a guide on this because we keep getting asked questions about it. Mm -hmm. And um, we do a lot of research as well. So we, we do... The work we do is informed by researching with those users. Even though it's like a group of 20, it's pretty stable who those 20 people are. But, you know, every project will have an element of doing research to know if we're doing the right thing. Mm. Time is always a constraint in almost every line of work. I've heard you say before that there's never enough time to do everything that needs to be done in research ops. In your experience to date, what are the most important things for someone that is perhaps a new research ops leader to focus on? Um, I would say it's different for every organisation and the first thing to do is work out what is key to focus on in your organisation. So, yeah, within three months of the team forming, 
um, we did a series of workshops with all the UX people to identify what all the pain points were. And then we could prioritize what stuff was coming up the most. So I would say if you have to start somewhere, probably start with data protection. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, in terms of, you know, being legally and ethically important. But I think having okay. those conversations to understand where, you know, where the biggest gaps are, where the biggest pain points are. Mm-hmm. is yeah the best way to go and what is it about that that is is one of the best ways to go so i think i think i, I guess i take that approach and still use a researcher at heart and just mm-hmm. you can particularly if you're new to an organization you can kind of make some assumptions of um what might be the right thing to do but, you know, understanding the research process that people are using and how you can fit into that and where you can support, I think it's just, yeah, useful to really get to know that before you start. Particularly, yeah, uh, like part of our jobs is like change management and even when we're changing things for the better, it's still a change that people have got to get used to. So you're starting to build those relationships so that um, you can understand how best to implement change. Yeah, that's that's a really valuable point. And it's uh, often underestimated just how important the, and people call them the soft factors, are in leading any kind of change. But ultimately, uh, it's reliant on those factors being well looked after uh, in order to be successful. Yeah, and I think there's something in, like, people feeling listened to it's, mm. yeah it's it's a research it's you know it's a tough job it's an amazing job but it can be quite tough so being able to just say you know this i find this really hard or this is working well and oh i can't mm. this yeah i think mm. that helps as well to start that engagement process you mentioned the importance of that new leader to research ops getting things in terms of uh, data compliance, GDPR, uh, from a legal and a a risk and an ethical point of view sorted as one of the first things that they do. GDPR has been in effect for three or so years now, and it really has forced companies to implement better ethics around how they collect and store and manage people's data. What impact have you observed that GDPR has had on the way that UX research is conducted? I think it forces is not the right word, but yeah, I'm going to say it anyway. Forces us to be much more organised about particularly data storage and where things are stored and how mm-hmm. and how long for and and also in sort of. I think it's a really good thing in terms of questioning, like what is the data that we really need rather than we'll just gather everything and see what comes but like really focusing in on what data do we need to answer the question that we have and I think that's a a really good thing I know when GDPR first came out people were quite scared it's like oh well we won't be able to research anymore but you know it's it often is perceived as a like oh GDPR because of this it's going to take longer but I don't think that's true I think it's complex and 
if you're not thinking about it every day, I mean, we think about it every day, it, you know, it can seem a bit scary, but there mm. will always be someone to ask. So, you know, just don't be afraid to ask a question. And if you're not sure if what you're doing is complying with data protection regulations, ask someone rather than just like hoping it's okay. And what are some practical considerations that researchers that may not have a research ops um, function or even research ops people need to consider when planning and running research uh, to be compliant with GDPR? So I think informed consent is one of the the key things and having a consent form that is signed off by data protection, signed off by legal, everyone's happy so that it covers you, but also it protects the participants as well. And they're very mm-hmm. clear on what data we're gathering and how we're going to use it and all that kind of thing. I think that's really key. And if you can make it accessible, then you know even better as well. So yeah, anybody can understand it, anybody can read it. I think that's a really important thing. And the other sort of things we spend a lot of time on is making sure that the tools that we use GDPR compliant um, mm. and particularly as we're yeah we're recording people they're potentially sharing personal information as they do the research so just making sure that it's really secure and we're storing the data in the right place in the right way is really mm. key mm. sounds like a bit of collaboration with a, a few other sort of experts in the organization are required yeah yeah, yeah. I think particularly for us is also like obviously being a big organization, there's lots of teams that have customer contacts and, you know, working with them to work out, you know, what is the data compliant way to potentially tap into their lists of people. Can we do that? Can't we mm-hmm. sort of understanding what people have signed up to? think yeah there's a lot of uh yeah collaborating with other people to make sure that it works mm. luckily that's one of the strong points of uh, researchers generally yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about data collection there it would be remiss of us not to have a conversation about quantitative and qualitative data and there's often a bit of tension between the worlds of those that favour quantitative UX research over qualitative UX research. People seem to be geared one way or another. There are the odd ones out there that sort of get both of those worlds, but generally I find that they're divided into two camps. What has been your experience? And if that's been a similar experience, why do you think that is? I think it's partly it's two different skill sets. Um, yeah. Um, and you're usually sort of stronger on one than the other. Mm. Um, so yeah, usually a qualitative researcher or a quantitative. Um, but in terms of, yeah, I guess your stakeholders, it's often, you know, they want to see the numbers. <laughs> yeah. I can understand. I've talk, been talking about it a lot uh, recently in terms of Again, we're, we're always asking, you know, what method do we need to answer this question, or you know, what method, yes. what data is going to speak to the stakeholders? And it's often 
combining the two so you get the why with the qualitative and then you get the scale with the quantitative um, mm. about it in meetings today and just talking about framing it in sort of each method has its own what it's really good at and what its limitations are so if you're combining different methods of quantitative and qualitative you're reducing you know potential for error you're reducing potential for bias and potential for and those limitations if they complement each other and i think reducing risk is ultimately what we're here to do so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean i myself recommend a lot yeah do both if you can but also acknowledging that it is different skill sets so if you're a qualitative researcher you might need some more support on the quantitative side because statistical significance can be a scary thing if you're not familiar with it and yeah just sort of yeah appreciating that it may take more effort and more time to do both types of research well if you're more versed in one than the other Mm. it's also perception again it's like yeah we want numbers but it's also the perception that quant is quicker and cheaper and um but i always try to go back to you know what question are we trying to answer and what method is going to get us you know the best answer that we can i mean you can't always use exactly the ideal combination of methods that we'd want to use you know there's always time pressure and budget pressure etc but what is going to be good enough yeah Mm. so i really like the way that you came back to what is the research question you know what are we really trying to learn and then letting that guide what the method might be Mm -hmm. rather than defaulting to what you might be most comfortable with um, having you know having bend one way or another I think that's a really valuable piece of uh, insight there I watched your talk at UX Istanbul in 2020 and you spoke about combining qualitative and quantitative decision uh, data and decision making like we've just talked about here mm-hmm. as a way of triangulating uh, or confirming um, your hypothesis about a research issue you said it was important in that talk to take some time to assess the data that you already have. Why is it important to take that breath and do that before you run into data collection? Mm. You may already have the data that you're looking for in big organisations. Someone might be collecting that data and you don't know about it. So it's partly, you know, we might, we might not need to spend this money to collect this data because we've already got it. But also it's about, so if we know, if we know a certain amount about what we're looking for, we can then really focus in on the specifics. We know where the gaps are. So I think it's rather than like just, it's partly redundancy. You don't want to do the same thing again and again, but it's also, can we get more focused on what it is that what question we're answering, what we do know, what we don't know. And again, mm. it's, it comes back to GDPR as well. It's like, do we need to collect this data um, or not? Yeah. Yeah. And you've written about the storage of research data in terms of what I believe you've called an insight library. 
Uh, perhaps other terms people might be familiar with. Um, there may be some distinction here, and please um, make the distinction if, if there is. They might be familiar with the term research repository. What are the factors that before you, first of all, I suppose, what is a insight library? And secondly, what are the factors that you need to consider as an organization or as a UX research ops uh, team before you go, go and try and implement one of these libraries into your organization? Mm. That's a good question. So I would say an insight library is a knowledge management tool. So it's very much you're extracting the insights from universal truths, we could probably call them, from the research. And it's it's sort of context agnostic. You're not about a specific product. It's probably sort of more about a user's context the way they behave it's been okay. shown true from multiple methods so there's many data points so you can say yeah um we know this thing about our users in this environment this is how they behave this is their context mm-hmm. and i think if you're going to have an insight library you really need a librarian that is a full-time job to maintain mm-hmm. that um insight to make sure that you know you're because you know that's quite an additional that's a huge additional job to do as a researcher when you're trying to deliver things for your team to then go and put the insights into a library when you're trying to plan the next project so like curating it and keeping it up to date and um you know making sure that those universal truths are still true like has there been a major shift in the market or in your organization's direction you'll have to go back and review mm. them are these mm. still valid so yeah um it it's a lot of work and i think often those things fail because people are doing them as a side job rather than having someone to like dedicate it mm. but there are there are still useful things that you can do before then like I do make a distinction between a research repository and an insight library. So research repository is more like you can go somewhere you can go and find, it might be like all the templates we have or all the um, the reports we have. So you haven't like extracted the meaning from the report, but you can go and find it and read it for yourself and decide if it's relevant or not. Got it. And, and is this so you can avoid repeating research that may have already been run? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, so you can avoid that redundancy. Or it may be, it's still a lot about making sort of connections. So I read this report mm. that my colleague did. I can then go and talk to them about it and maybe mm. get some inspiration for what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. This is actually quite a good point, I feel, to uh, segue into some practical scenario based questions. Are you ready for some of those? Yes. Okay. Here's the first one. Your team recently ran a study only to find out that almost the same study had been run by another team a few months before. This frustrated you and you want to avoid it in the future. Where do you start? So, good question. I think I would first check. Is it really just repeating the same thing or are they are there different focuses? Or is it a valid thing to do it twice? But I think it's it's often about establishing track 
is that um so that you're sort of as a team sharing like we're planning this we're planning this so you know what other people are planning to do what's on the roadmap and having mm. those tools those places to that people can go and find what's been done before so that you're not repeating it. yeah i think it's partly tools partly infrastructure partly sort of again sort of like networking and just Got like it. connecting with people part of um the usefulness of having a centralized team like where i sit is that because we're talking to everybody when people say, oh, I plan this research, I can say, oh, yes, I spoke to another team three months ago. They did something very similar. Maybe you should talk to them before you start doing this. So if you've got people who have that sort of overview, that bird's eye view of the bigger picture, that can be very useful as well. Yeah, that sounds really useful. You mentioned tools in, in there as, as a way of helping to alleviate that issue. What tools... Have you ever used in the past or are currently using to uh, make it obvious what research is being planned or has recently been run, planned or run? Um, so we currently use Trello. Um, okay. And not everybody loves it, but it works fairly well, particularly for what's being planned at the moment. Not so well for uh, finding old research and reading that. Um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this because we're going to be working on it this year. And it's sometimes you need to start way before the tour and think about, you know, do we have good naming conventions so that you can search? Because we also um, have a lot of our stuff on Google Drive. So can you search Google Drive and, you know, find a report because it's got a sensible name that I can understand? And mm -hmm those sorts of things are they, yeah, are they all stored in the right place so I know I can go and look in this place and I'll find what I'm looking for and so part of it is yeah governance and part of it is tools got it that's really practical really helpful advice are you ready for another one <laughs> okay here we go you're a junior researcher and you've been given the opportunity to present the findings and recommendations of your team's recent study to a group of senior stakeholders. How do you present these effectively? Um, I would say practice first. <laughs> talk mm -hmm. to you, yeah, if you're working with a more senior person, talk to them about it, um, get an understanding of what the priorities of the stakeholders are, you know, is there, um, you know, what do we lead with essentially, you know, if you, if, mm. you, if they're going to take away one message, what do we want it to be and sort of, yeah, sort of front load to your, um, your presentation. Um, but yeah, That's I think good advice you, right there, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Do your yeah. research on your stakeholders. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's yeah knowing what's important to them so you can talk to them about that first. And um, I mean, particularly for me when I was more junior, being able to practice before going into you know very senior space, it, it really helps as well. And then you can sort of like hone and refine the way yeah 
you're telling the story. Got it. Yeah, really good. Really good. One more? Yep. <laughs> okay. This one is, you've taken on the challenge of establishing research operations at your company. How do you decide what to focus your limited time and resources on? So I would look at what's already been done. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, what is it that absolutely has to be done? Like we're talking about data protection. So like make sure things are secure and legal and protected first. Um, I would say from what I know of research, recruitment, participant recruitment is quite a good place to start. Um, particularly if you haven't got someone that's doing the recruitment for everybody, mm-hmm. it's, it's quite difficult and labor intensive part of the research process. So there is probably things you can do to support them there and it will make yeah the people you're supporting very happy. <laughs> I'm yet to find anybody that loves doing the recruitment part of UX research, but I'm sure there are some, there's someone out there somewhere. Somewhere, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, us as a team of two, we don't, we provide support for recruitment, but we don't do the recruitment ourselves and yeah. I, they wish mm. we would. <laughs> mm. So why is research ops so important? I think it enables high quality research, impactful research to be done. Um, yeah. And I think it's for the researcher, it's to, like, taking some of the burden away. So like when mm. they are under pressure and they're trying to plan and do project they don't have to think about um like we have templates for the interview guide for their plan and for their reports mm. so they don't have to think about those other things they can really focus on doing the right research and you know doing a good thing mm. and yeah i just think it helps with consistency as well as quality and just i think it's a key part of a maturing research practice to have that support in place yeah mm. yeah yeah if, if, if anyone listening to this has ever worked in an organization where research ops is in place uh, they will agree with what you've said it makes a huge difference <laughs> it takes a lot of load off of the researchers and enables them like you've said to just focus on doing the research that they already do well, even better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. How do you feel about playing a quick game? Okay. <laughs> Nothing to worry about, I promise. It's a really easy one. It's called, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Okay. So what I have is, a, I've got uh, three in this case, three words or phrases. I'm going to say one of them at a time, and mm-hmm. then you just let me know what comes to mind. Okay. Are you, are you ready? Yep. Okay. The first one is research ops. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> the second one is GDPR. Um, essential. Yeah. And the final one is writing. Harder than you think. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I have triangulated that data with many an author, and uh, I would agree that it's the conclusion <laughs> that most people draw. <laughs> so, Stephanie, thinking about 
UX research, and that I'm imagining encompasses in this case research ops. Where it's at now, what's your greatest hope for where the profession might go over the coming years? Um, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of getting that representation at the really senior levels. Mm -hmm. So that I think that would really help to um, really integrate it into more into the culture of an organisation than just like everyday practice. I think that would help. Yeah, mm. it's a, it's yeah. really a combination of yeah, of marrying sort of like culture and skill together to have really impactful research. It's a great thought to finish on. Stephanie, it's been a really interesting and insightful conversation today. Thank you for so generously you. sharing your knowledge and experiences with me. I'm sure that the people listening to this episode will get a huge amount of value out of what they've heard today. Yeah, great. Thank you. I hope it is helpful. Yeah. If people want to find out more about you, Stephanie, what you do, your books, um, your writing, what's the best way for them to do that? So I use Twitter only for research and research operations and some PCD stuff. So you can yeah find me on Twitter mm-hmm. if only I remember my handle. Or, yeah, I blog mostly on Medium. And even if I blog on other platforms, I tend to then also put it in my Medium. So it's all in one place. So I would say they're the best places to go. Great. Thanks, Stephanie. I'll be sure to put links through to your Twitter and also to your Medium in the show notes. To everyone who's tuned in or listening to this episode, it's been great having you do that. Everything that we've covered in the conversation today will be in the show notes on YouTube, including where to find Stephanie and her book, User Research, plus any of the other resources that we've mentioned. If you've enjoyed the show today and you want to hear more of these great conversations with world-class leaders in design, UX and product, don't forget to leave us a comment and subscribe to the podcast. And until next time... Keep being brave.